After Stephen was stoned to death, the Bible says in the beginning of chapter 8 that a great persecution arose in the city of Jerusalem. And when it did, the majority of the believers, in fact, the Bible says all of the believers except for the apostles, scattered throughout that region. Now, the bad news about that was that these believers were being persecuted. They were they lost their homes, they lost their families, they lost their communities, they lost their jobs. And uh, the good news, however, is as they scattered, so the gospel of Jesus Christ was scattered throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and throughout Samaria. So that was a good thing. And one of the men responsible for taking the gospel to the Samaritans was a man by the name of Philip, who was one of the seven men that we read about in the beginning of chapter 6, who were chosen by the Hellenists to be able to look after the widows. So he was faithful to serve there in Jerusalem, and now that he's scattered because of this persecution, he's now being faithful to take the gospel to the Samaritan uh, people. And as he's there, he preaches the gospel. He begins to perform miracles, signs, wonders before the people. And because of it, people begin to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But what this passage teaches us is that not everybody who claims to believe in Jesus actually believes in a way in which demonstrates that they're truly born again. Thus enters in uh, Simon, a man that we're going to study about this morning. Uh, Simon um, was a man who had heard the gospel. He was a man who had seen miraculous signs of God. He, he was a man who, who professed to believe in Christ, and he was a man who had a close association with the church, at least for a period of time. And yet the Bible says in verse 21, notice that, even in light of all of that, the Bible says, yet his heart was not right before God. His heart was not right before God. Now, I don't know if you have problems in your life. Anybody have any problems that you're facing at all, like all of us, right? No such thing as life without problems. But I don't know if you've ever been kind of overwhelmed with the problems that were hitting you. Maybe they're financial. Maybe they were relational. Maybe they're financial. And you get to the point where you just can't even see straight in the midst of all these problems. And you begin to confide in somebody. And you sit down and go, man, I just got to tell you everything that's on my plate and everything that's going wrong. And they sit there and they turn to you and go, hey, brother, problems. You... You don't know what a problem is. So then they begin to share with you their problems. And the truth is, after you hear their problems, you're thankful for your problems. You're thankful. You sit back and you go, you're right, brother. I've got no reason to complain. You must be an angel of God sent by God to encourage me because I'd rather have my problems than your problems. Well, Simon was that guy. Simon was the type of guy that you did not want and do not want to have his problems because his problems kept him from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In this, we see three, specifically three problems that he faced that I think many people face today, which keep them from coming to true, true salvation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's three. First of all, there is a self problem, a motivation problem, and a repentance problem. Three again, a self problem, a motivation problem, and a repentance problem. Let's look at that first. First of all, a self-problem. Notice, if you will, in verse 9, the Bible says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So Simon mentioned here by Luke, also sometimes known or referred to as Simon Magus or also Simon the Sorcerer. You might know him by that name. And, and he received this because he had made both a living 
uh, and, and a reputation that he gained for himself amongst the Samaritans because of his great practice of magic. Now, the Bible doesn't indicate what kind of magic this was, whether this was some kind of, whether it was powered by some kind of uh, demonic force or whether this was some kind of trickery, uh, you know, sleight of hand. I remember as a little boy being fascinated with that type of magic, not the occult magic, right? But the sleight of hand magic, going into a magic store and a young man was like, hey, can you hold this ball for me? This little foam ball. And I was like, sure. And he goes, hold it real tight. And he goes, now open it. And I opened it and five balls popped out of one, right? And I was like, amazing. Well, this is a little bit what was going on during that day. They were amazed by this magic in which he was ultimately performing. And the Bible says they were so impressed. Look at verse 10. It says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And the ESV the Bible gives a capital letter on that word great, indicating that the people actually believed that he was divine. They believed that he was some kind of, or some form of God. And we find proof of that throughout history. And one of our early church fathers by the name of Justin Martyr, that wasn't his given name by his parents, that would just be cruel, Justin Martyr. It was a name that he received after him being martyred by the church. And Justin Martyr writes in the, the middle of the second century about this Simon. And he says to him, he says that he wrote, almost all of the Samaritans of his day worshipped him as a god. Justin Martyr goes on to describe that on, on a trip that Simon took uh, from Samaria to Rome, that people, when he got to Rome, people began to worship him again as a god, and they erected a sculpture in, in, in his honor, and on that sculpture it read, to the holy god Simon. Now, when people begin to think you're a god, when people begin to worship you as a god, that's a problem. Would you agree? It is an infinitely greater problem when you begin to enjoy it and you begin to believe it. The way he responds here to all of this is the Bible says that he, he, he goes about his business while saying that he himself was somebody great. Now, we see a huge difference between the way he responds to the people's praise as a God as we do with the apostles. A little bit later in Acts chapter 14, people will begin to think because of the supernatural acts of, uh, of Paul and Barnabas, they're going to think that they are gods and they begin to worship him as such. But they respond in a completely different way than what Simon does. What they do is they, they immediately, the Bible says, that they were grieved and they begin to tear their clothing and immediately they rushed out to the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? Men, we also are men of like nature with you. But Sam, Simon's response is different. He has an elevated view of himself. He loves the praise of his people. Look, it's, it's one thing to wear a foam finger. You know the big number one foam finger? You know, you, you, it, maybe some of you Jaguar fans. And it's one thing to wear one of those and put one on your finger that says something about your team and you go around going, the Jags are number one, even though they never are. But the Jags are number one, right? And, and, and to be able to do that. It's another thing to have a foam finger with your name on it. To be able to go around and go, I'm number one. I can't be number two. I'm gonna beat the whoopsie yaddy. No, sorry. I'm yeah. So... Flashback to sitting on the bench in high school. So uh, anyway, so that's all I did was learn the cheers. And so, um, so the idea there is, is that it's one thing to be able to be so self-involved and to begin to think that I am something great. But the reality is, and, and, and truth is, we see people like that in our culture. Maybe you know somebody like that, and it sickens us. It sickens you in your heart when you see somebody who is, who is blatantly boasting in themselves and in their greatness. We're sick about it. But the reality is, if you and I had even any capacity of being honest, 
we sit there, and as much as that disgusts us, the reality is, is that while we're condemning someone for their blatant audacity to appear great secretly in our own hearts, we crave to be great. We crave to be viewed as great. We want people to think that we are something. We often dress to catch the, to catch, to catch the, the attention of others. We may drive certain vehicles or live in certain neighborhoods, all to be able to raise up or to, to elevate our own reputations within the community that we live. We, we may do exceptional work in order to draw admiration from others, or we might even use our spiritual gifts, which were given to us to make much of God, and we use them to make much of ourselves. The truth is that there is a really fine line, I think, between a healthy, pray, a healthy ambition uh, with a desire to do well for the glory of God, and then on the other side, to have a sinful ambition to do well to seek the praise of other people. And the truth is, there are, I think, there are a lot of different marks and a lot of telling signs that we're really all about self, and it has nothing to do with a big foam finger on your hand. Instead, there are other indicators, oftenly. If you find yourself often being offended by others, if, you, if, you, if, if your feelings are easily hurt, if you find yourself becoming uh, often irritated with those who are around you, if you feel a sense of jealousy when others are praised or you have a hard time praising others, or if you find yourself constantly comparing yourself to others, leaving you feeling as though uh, you're just not good enough, all of these are signs that you and I have a self-problem. If you, if you find yourself wanting and believing that people need to know your opinion and there's a desire for everyone to know it, and if they don't listen to it, you demand your right, that you have a right to be heard, again, all of these indicators of having way too much self. Too much self is, is a problem because ultimately it ends, up keeping, it ends up keeping us from seeing our need. If you think you are great, then you never see the need of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, is that whether, you know, sometimes people sit there and go, well, I don't think I'm great. Mike, I think I'm, I'm bad. I think that I'm not good at anything. I, I think that, that, that I don't compare to anybody. Anything that I try, even in my life, young people listen to this. We, we hear this often at the, at the, uh, out of the mouths of young people. I'm just not good at anything. You too have a self-problem. Because the truth of the matter is, you cannot make much of Christ when you are talking and thinking too much about yourself, whether it is that you are great or whether it is that you are not. The real place to be as a believer in, just, in Jesus Christ is to think not about ourselves at all. So there is a self-problem that can keep us coming to faith in Christ. Number two, he had a motivation problem. A motivation problem. I think we would all agree as believers in Christ, those who are believers in Christ, there is nothing more important for us than to be saved, than to place our faith in Jesus Christ. But equally as important to our faith placed in him is the motivation of why we place our faith in him. And here we see that he had a motivation problem. We see a glimpse of that in verse 11. Note this. And it says, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic, but, now notice this, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
So for a period of time, he was praised by people. He was honored. He had all the fame and the fortune he could possibly imagine. Then Philip comes along preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those that were once following him aren't going to follow him anymore. Why? Because they know he's not God. They know that Jesus Christ is God. So they're not going to be following him. So you know what we call this? We call this a moment of crisis for Simon. You, you know what that moment of crisis is, where everything seems to be going incredibly well, and then everything, the whole bottom of your life falls out. Anybody ever experienced that? And this is that moment, and it's during that moment that he comes to faith in Christ. Now, let me say, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. In fact, I think you would agree, it's many of us can share a testimony like that, that it was maybe in the darkest, most difficult time, or some of the biggest problems and challenges that we're facing, maybe some of the biggest hurts that God used to bring the gospel into our lives and bring us to faith in Christ. My dad's testimony would have been this way. He was, he was in the midst of a divorce when somebody shared the gospel with him. And he had before he heard the gospel, he believed that this was the greatest pain and the, and the greatest difficulty that he would ever face. But somebody came and shared the gospel and said, Brother, I know that this is painful. I know that this is hard. But you've got a much deeper, much worse problem than your divorce from your spouse. Your problem is you are divorced from your God because of your sin. So when my dad repented and came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was not primarily to be able to get a wife back and for God to be able to restore his marriage. It was for him to be restored to his God, independent of whether God would bring that marriage back together or not. And so what we find is, is that is a natural thing but we also understand that, that on the other side, some people are coming to faith in God. The Bible says several will come to faith in Christ. Simon, on the other hand, seems to be coming to faith in Christ because he's hoping Christ will give him something else. What he really wants is he wants to use God to be able to get what his idolatrous heart desires. He wants that power. He wants that fame. He wants that attention. And now that he's lost it, he thinks that Jesus Christ might be the key to be able to get all of those idolatrous things back within him. How careful you and I have got to be when we are presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to attract people to faith in Christ by offering things that their idolatrous hearts long for. To be able to come and to be able to say things like, hey, is your marriage struggling? What you need is you need Jesus. Hey, are you lacking joy inside of your life? Hey, what you need is joy. Jo Jesus will give you a joy that's, that, that you, you can't even imagine. Hey, are, are, do you need peace in your life? Are you needed that? Well, then what you need is peace. God will give you a peace that, again, beyond all comprehension. Jesus will give you that peace. Now, the difficulty with these things is that there's an element of truth in all of those. There's not a person here that hasn't come and tasted of the grace and the mercy of God that wouldn't say, I've tasted of his grace, but has also tasted of his peace. I've also tasted of his goodness. I've tasted of his riches. I've tasted of his blessings. I've tasted all those things. But you know as well as I do that using God and Jesus as a means to an end is different than viewing Jesus as an end unto himself. There's a story, and some of you probably will remember this, in the book of John. You remember in chapter 6 where there's such a huge crowd following Jesus at this point. Any Baptist preacher would think this is true success, right? They're like, how are we going to build? What are we going to ultimately do? Jesus wasn't impressed at all. Jesus said that, he wouldn't, said that he wouldn't give himself over to the people because he knew what was inside of their hearts. And Jesus said, he goes, look, there, 
They're, they're not after me for, because I'm the bread of life. They're after me because they want me to produce bread for them. That's where their hearts are, and they're just using me for it. So it says he wouldn't give them himself to them. That's a terrifying type thing, right? This is the situation that Simon finds him in. And finally, he gets up, and he does what we often do here. A message comes along. We're kind of, things are getting a little bit tight. We don't really have space. And then we preach some message, and then all of a sudden, we have room again. All right, so Jesus does this really, really well because when he preaches, he preaches on spiritual cannibalism. He gets up and he goes, if you want to follow after me, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And then all of a sudden, apparently that's not good for church growth. And so he, he says this, and it says almost the majority of all those massive crowds that were following him leave and, and, and want nothing to do with him. And Jesus turns to his disciples at this and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answers, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. His focus was not on what Jesus might or might not be able to do for them or give to them. Their focus was on Jesus himself. Do you see the difference? So I don't, I don't know where you are today or why you're here today. You might be here because you're broken. You might be here because there's difficulty. You might be here because you're experiencing pains and the bottom may have fallen out. And we love you. And even more than that, God loves you. And you're here because you're so desperate. You just need the pain to go away. You need somebody to be able to fix it. And I'm here to be able to let you know that God does care. And, and God many times has restored many of these things. But here's what I want you to know. Your greatest problem is not the temporal difficulty that you're going through, but is an eternal problem between you and God. An easy way, even for you, that profess faith in Jesus Christ. Here's a real easy way to know whether you have a motivation or problem or not. And that is, whatever you're seeking, whatever you're asking for, if God gave you none of it, that all he gave you was forgiveness of sins, adoption of sons and daughters of God, and eternal life, if that's all he gave you, but would not give you any of the temporal things that your heart so greatly desires, would you still follow him? If you do, that's a demonstration of true authentic faith. If you don't, it demonstrates a wrong motivation. There's a third problem that he has here, and it's not only in, in the fact that he had a, excuse me, that there was a self problem and a motivation problem, but third, there was a repentance problem. And so I've got to explain a couple things here just to make sure that we clear this up. Notice if you want the word, he says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they received the Holy Spirit. Now there are some, uh, some charismatics, some... Um, some different beliefs within kind of the Christian faith that believe that this is normative, what happens here. Now, notice what happens. It's like two stages. There is a coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and then there is a long period where the disciples have to receive word that people came to faith. They leave Samaria, they come, or Jerusalem, they come to Samaria, they lay hands on, the apostles lay hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. But up to this point, if you've been paying attention, this isn't how it's worked up to this point, has it? Since the beginning of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, 
Even the message by Peter was simply this. He says, if you believe, believe for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You guys tracking with me? That's how it's happened. So they, they are born again, then immediately the Holy Spirit comes. And that's happened all the way up to this point. Here is something different because it's no longer one stage. It's like a two-stage deal that's going on. The question is, how do we explain that? How do we make sense of it? Well, let me say this first. Uh, first of all, when they believed in Jesus Christ, they did receive the Holy Spirit at that time. How do you know? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you can't be born again without the Holy Spirit within you. What he's talking about here is that they didn't receive a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Now, just stick with me for a minute. What does that mean? We've seen these manifestations. When the Holy Spirit came on them, we would see people speak in tongues. We would see them this, receive this incredible bravery and courage to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later on in the book, it says they were filled with the Spirit, and they were filled with this abounding joy. Those were all these different manifestations that demonstrated that the Holy Spirit had come. It was a sign that the Holy Spirit had come, the, the Holy Spirit that Jesus had ultimately promised. But here there is a delay. Why is there a delay? For two specific reasons. One is for validation, and the other is for unification. First of all, let me just say for validation. When the Holy Spirit first came in Acts 2, do you remember there were a bunch of fireworks, right? People, the people begin to speak in tongues. They begin to do all these things. Why was it such a huge explosion? It was a huge explosion because they needed to know that this was what Jesus Christ had promised them at this moment. Now we see that the gospel is going beyond the Jews, and now they're going where? To a whole new people group known as the Samaritans. And so what he does is they wait and have the apostles come down, lay hands on them to let them know that this is not some other religious thing that's going on, that something's happening in Jerusalem, and now something's happening amongst the, uh, the, the Samaritans, and there's no connection to them at all. When they come and they lay hands on them, the Spirit comes. It shows them that this moving of God amongst the Samaritans is in fact from God and is in fact from Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's, it's a way of validating that this is truly from the person of Jesus Christ. So there's validation, but then there's also unification. There's also unification, and that is this. You don't have to be in the church very long, read the Bible very long, to know that the Jewish people, as well as the Samaritans, couldn't stand each other. They hated each other. That, you have to understand that when you're reading the story of the Good Samaritan and, and why it was so impressive that he would help a, a Jewish person. Why? Because they hated each other. It's the same thing as, as Jesus asking the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, to give me some water. This was blowing people's minds because these two folks did not talk. They did not interact at all. So now when the gospel comes to them and the apostles come and lay hands on them, what they're in essence doing is this is bringing unification, by the way. This is sitting there going, no more is there going to be divisions. No more are there going to be these people and that people and this type of people and this skin color and this language over here. All people are God's people through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul would say it this way in Galatians 3, verse 28, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Does that make sense? Now what we're going to do is here in chapter 8, we see that two-stage process. They come to believe, and then all of a sudden the apostles come. You're going to see it again in chapter 10 with the Gentiles, and then later on we're going to see it with the Old Testament believers. It's not normative for it to be two stages, 
but it was two stages strategically during the New Testament in order to both validate and to be able to unify the different peoples of God. Make sense? That was worth the cost of admission, wasn't it? Some of you are like, I have no idea what in the world you're talking about. But these are important for us to be able to understand. But let's get back to the major overarching point. Many people are confused what happened here. Guess who else was confused? Simon. So Simon comes and he says this in verse 18. He says, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This guy says that he believes, but he has no idea what the gospel means. No idea the meaning of the gospel. Your salvation and my salvation cannot be purchased by us. It must be purchased, but you and I don't have what it takes to purchase it. This man was a man of great money. He thought that he could just use his money and purchase the Spirit of God. In other words, purchase salvation. Now, why would that happen? Well, one author writes, money opens doors, and once, once you open doors with money, you think any door can be opened with money, not this door. You must be purchased. You must be, your salvation must be purchased, but you and I cannot purchase that salvation. No matter what you do, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much money you give to the church or away to somebody else, it is not sufficient at all. The sufficiency comes through the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So he's so offended by this because he realizes that he doesn't have any part in Christ that he tells them to repent. Notice what he says. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said has come true. Simon can't even pray for himself. Did you notice this? That it's not true repentance. Why? Because he does feel bad. He does feel sorrow. But why does he feel sorrow? He feels sorrow over the consequences of his sin. He can't even get himself to repent to God. He can't even pray to God and say, God, forgive me of your sins. All he's worried about is that God's going to come down hard on him. Isn't this a picture of the same false repentance that we see all over the place? Child comes in and he, you know, we, we, dis, you know, he, we finds out that he's done something wrong. All they can think about is, I'm going to get a whooping. I just want the whooping to go away. But as a parent, you're sitting there going, listen, you may be disciplined for what you did, but, but the discipline is only to get you to understand this is not right. What I want is a change of heart. I don't want you to continue to do this. How many Sundays do you think that there are people who come into the house of God and every week they live a life of hell for no other way to be able to say it? I'm not using that in a derogatory sense. I mean, literally, apart from God, not thinking about God, not, not, not serving Him, not loving Him, not doing anything, and they go out and they, they take part in everything that is completely contrary to the faith and the person of Jesus Christ, all to be able to come back to that church Sunday. Then when, when the pastor is preaching, they feel guilty. They feel sorrow. They feel bad for what it is that, they, that they've ultimately done. And, and, and then what they do is, when they leave, they actually feel better for feeling bad. It's like spiritual masochism. Boy, I'll tell you what, he really stepped on my toes, preacher. Boy, I'll tell you what, man. That I took to the woodshed. Now I'm ready to go out and do it all over again. That's not repentance. And the Bible warns us against this. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice. Now listen, listen carefully. He says, Not because you were grieved, 
He says, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There are people who are even sitting here that already maybe feel guilty, whatever. They're sitting there. They're going, man, I'm that guy. I've been doing that. Or I'm that woman. I've been doing that. I'm the young person. I've been doing all of these things. And man, you feel bad. You could not feel worse from what you've done. And you are grieved over it. But my question is, have you repented of it? Are you coming and going, hey, man, I'm just, I feel good. I feel better when I feel bad about myself. If I just feel bad about myself long ago, long enough, then I don't have to worry about what I ultimately did. I'm paying my penance here. And now when I leave, when I leave, hopefully everything is good enough for God so I can continue in my sin and hopefully escape the discipline of God. It's not repentance. Problem here is he had a repentance problem. Repentance is simply sitting and going, yeah, I'm grieved over my sin because I call my sin what it is, and that is a blight against God. I have sinned against nobody but you and you alone, dear God. And I hate this sin. And I do not want to continue in it. I do not want to follow in it. I don't want to go after it. God, I want to reject it, and I want to turn from my sin and self with no inclination of returning to that slop again. I want to go, and I want to follow you with all of my heart. Now, will you fall into the pit time and time again? Yeah. Many times we continue to fall in many ways. But there's a difference between seeking that sin planning that sin, and falling into it. Believers in God who have truly repented, placed their faith in Christ, and been born again, are those who fall into sin. They do not seek it out. So what problem maybe are you suffering with today? Is your heart right before God? Simply put, I'm going to ask you, Ashley, just come at this time. L let me ask you this. Are, are you struggling from a self-problem this morning? Are, are you frustrated? Look, coming into the house of God, you're frustrated, you're angry, you're, you're just, just listen very carefully. Just, you're to the point. And, and so much about why you're so upset is because it's just too much about you. It's just too much about you. But, but I, I'm not. I don't think I'm great. It doesn't matter. You can't make much of Christ if it's all about you and even your hurt feelings and what people have ultimately done to you. You have a self problem. Motivation problem. Hey, I mean, I'm here, and I think if I just maybe come this morning and I do enough right things, then maybe God's going to give me what I want. That is using God. God knows, and he will not give himself over to those who choose to use him. And finally, just this last problem is there a repentance problem for you. You know what I think would be amazing is if we had some fathers here that would truly repent what a Father's Day gift that would be to your family. To be able to sit there and go, you know what, I know that I've said I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry a million times, but really what today is is a day of repentance. I'm sitting there recognizing that the sin that I've caused my family and my friends, and I'm turning away from this, and I don't want a part of this anymore. I place my faith in you. And the Bible says what that repentance is is a demonstration of God's sovereign grace being poured out on you. So maybe today is a day of repentance. Maybe today is a day of coming and saying, God, I've got some problems. I've got to come. I've got to repent from you and turn to you. That's the call for all of us today. And here's the wonderful thing. Christ is sufficient. His forgiveness is sufficient. When he tells him, he says, come, that he might forgive you. He's saying, if you come and repent, he will forgive you.
He will. So would you come? Would you come to him? Would you call out to him? Altar's going to be open. And, and I know, look, that, just very quickly, I know that this is always kind of a funny time because our church is so schizophrenic, we don't know what we're doing, right? We're like, are we the type that comes down front or not the type that comes down front? Are we the type that we respond to the, uh, the invitation? Or are we not the type that respond to the invitation? We are a type that always responds to the preaching of God's word. And the truth is you may do that exactly where you are. And we're not bummed if the whole the whole congregation does not come down front, all we're seeking is a response to God. If in your heart it helps you to be able to walk and to be able to bend a knee and go, God, and ask for prayer, do it. If where you are is where you call out to God and ask for His grace, then you do it right where you are. Let today be that day. All those problems, God is sufficient to take them away. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you. God, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus. God, that we would respond to you in your truth and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'll be down here if you want some prayer. But do business with God this morning.